Welcome back, uh, Beach Central Podcasters. Today, one of the most read and look forward to uh, features on Beef Central at any time is the much-anticipated listing of Australia's top 25 lot feeders. How important are feedlots? Well, here's a quick scoreboard check. 80% of all beef sold in supermarkets is from feedlots. And two, total industry value now well in excess, in fact, well north of $3 billion. And for 20 successive quarters, the number of cattle on feeder in Australia has exceeded 1 million. On behalf of Zoetis, to talk about the Beef Central survey of the top 25 lot feeders, please welcome Andrew Hullis. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. And also let me introduce the uh, principal of Beef Central, John Connor. Hello, John. Yes, morning, Kerry. Nice to be with you. And John, your first feedlot. You've been around this place, uh, the, the beef industry, a long time. Do you remember your first feedlot? Look, I do. I, uh, I, uh, I visited uh, Aranui at near Dolby with uh, Dougal Cameron back in the very early 80s. Aranui had already been going 20-odd years by that stage, so it was one of the absolute originals in the industry. So that was my entree into the grain-fed industry, and um, fortunately I've had opportunity to visit a fair few of Australia's feedlots since. Yeah, Andrew, your first feedlot? You're a little younger than most of us, so uh, where, where was your first? Yeah, a little bit younger. I finished school in 99 and went up to Emerald College for a couple of years, so uh, yeah. I got to uh, get exposed to, um, to GNU feedlot in those days. The cattle are pretty different up there now to what they were 20 plus years ago. And uh, do remember doing a tour down to Kerwee and uh, seeing uh, probably some of the, the first real long-fed Wagyu cattle down there. So yeah, that's, uh, that'd be my early times of the feedlot industry. I remember talking about feedlots in the Hunter Valley a long, long time ago. Just talking about them, we didn't, certainly didn't see them. And there was a general view that they wouldn't last. Just a hobby and they would fade away. Okay, let's get underway. John, first, I know it creates a lot of talk in the industry, but why do we need to talk about a top 25 lot feeder list? Well, Kerry, firstly, we do have a good data that comes out about the industry on a regular basis through the quarterly industry survey, providing us with insight into the actual numbers of cattle on feed, the um, feeding capacity across the industry, and that's broken down into a state basis. But the idea of this feedlot is to drill down a lot deeper. I mean, we've asked the, the lot feeders on the list a whole lot of questions about their operations beyond simply the number of cattle they're feeding, but also uh, the types of cattle, the descriptions, whether they're feeding yearlings or mid-fed or wagyu, and some questions around their staffing and, and, and other issues to do with their, their operations. So we like to think that it's giving us a great deal of additional insight in how the industry is functioning future intentions and that sort of thing. So it's not a sheer numbers game, there's a lot of, lot of other factors no, to it? No, absolutely not. So we did do, just so readers and listeners understand, we did a similar survey to this back in 2015, which does give us a nice little context to put the current figures into. And then in addition to that, we've sourced a, uh, an Ausmeet feedback feature on Top 25 back from 2003, which has given us a 20-year perspective. So it's nice to be able to see the, the, the progression that the industry's gone through over the last 20 years. Andrew, uh, you're, you're on feedlots uh, most days of the week. What's the reception like for the feedlot survey? Oh, look, I, I think uh, I go to quite a lot of events. I'm actually up at the Northern Territory uh, Cattlemen's Association this week and uh, was with one of the top 25 feeders last night and uh, it was a topical conversation as it was over over dinner at an industry event last week. So 
it's a it's an industry relevant topic, and anyone who's a is a cattle breeder, backgrounder, finisher wants to uh, wants to know what's going on, wants to know the trends. At the end of the day, they need to be tuned into their industry and and know what's going on. So it's a highly topical piece of uh, information that everyone's enjoying to read. This survey is not new uh, for Beef Central, but John, uh, a lot feed is okay about supplying information. We've been pleasantly surprised with the. Uh, Degree of cooperation. I mean, there were one. There was one feedlot amongst the the, the many that we spoke to that uh, was was reluctant to share too much information. What did you do? Did you did you phone the neighbour or anything? Well, that's we basically yes. We go to pe- other people with knowledge of the yard yeah. and, and accumulate a, a picture based on on other people who've got some connection in other ways with the yard. And so it wasn't an impediment. And yeah. but every the vast majority have been very cooperative. So where are the most of the top twenty five located? It's interesting, when we did the survey uh, seven years ago, it was only the three eastern states. Queensland was the dominant state with, uh, with entries, followed by New South Wales and Victoria. This time, we have entries for the first time from South Australia. There's two, two entries on the 25 from, from SA and one from Western Australia. It's fair to say, though, that the three eastern states still dominate the, dominate the list. It's interesting to note, though, Kerry, if you look back at those two previous surveys that I mentioned back in 2003, you'd only need 4,500 cattle to make the top 25 list. In 2015, when we did this survey last, it was 9,500, substantial increase, double effectively. This year, 17,000 to, wow. to get to the bottom of the list, and a lot of them are a lot bigger than that. So you can see a, a, clear, a clear trend there in growth over, over time. Yeah. That one that's located away over in Western Australia, I want to talk about that later because it's so extraordinarily different. But uh, a pretty broad question now. What were some of the main findings from the survey? And uh, Andrew, you can jump in here if you wish. So firstly, just let me give you a bit of an idea how how it was set up and how it was ranked. So firstly, we didn't just do a a Google search or a desktop study. We actually went out and spoke to lot feeders across Australia, more than 40 in total. Firstly, to eliminate the ones that would not be on the list because of size. And then once we'd narrowed down to 25 that we were confident were the biggest, we then circled back and did in-depth interviews with each of those to drill into their businesses. So, you know, we like to think it does have a bit of credibility. It is a survey of lot feeders, not feedlots. So there are there's 25 lot feeders on this list, but they represent 44 yards across Australia. Obviously big operators like JBS, Five feedlots, but they only represent one one entry. So, I should have just reference how we decided how we ranked them. It very briefly. There's lots of different ways to gauge size of a feedlot. There's um, standard cattle units, which is the industry metric uh, for regulatory purposes. You could judge them by current cattle numbers on feed, annual cattle turnoff, which probably starts to drill a little bit more into whether they're feeding yearling type cattle for Woolworths or Coles or long-fed Wagyu because there can be dramatic differences in turnover. Absolutely, yes. And, you know, a lot of the Wagyu feedlots aren't turning over one cycle of cattle per year. There's feedlots feeding for domestic programs, feeding five cycles per year. So there's a lot to take into account. Even annual carcass weight tonnage is another metric that we've looked into. So in a sim- the simple answer is we chose a combination to try to sort of tease out and account for different styles of feeding in, in different yards. In terms of the main points, firstly, this time there were about 960,000 cattle in the yards that comprise the top 25. 
and that's uh, more than a third higher than the 2015 report. So we're all aware of the progression and the overall growth in the industry, but it's at least a third higher than it was uh, seven years ago. And we think they the top 25 currently accounts for about 65% of the entire feeding capacity. So just a few of the major points, if I could. And Andrew, you jump in here if anything I say you think needs some embellishment. The first theme is the big get bigger. I think the overwhelming trend we're seeing this year is expansion in existing feedlots uh, rather than the new ones being built. Most of the yards on this list are at least 20 years old and some considerably older. In fact, there's only one yard on the entire list that's less than 10 years old. The second trend in terms of how the industry has grown has been in expansion into an additional yard. I think a lot of that's got to do with where an existing yard has limitations in terms of water or regulatory reasons. Uh, so the 25 this year, as I say, own 44 yards. So there's been a lot of signs of, a, of an existing owner purchasing a second yard, often a smaller one with growth potential has been a fairly common trend to, to expand either in another geographic region or where there's better access to water or whatever. Another trend that's clearly seen is custom feeding is in decline. There's, there's, there's a significant decline in the number of cattle that are being fed for other customers and that's because of the momentum in corporate and company brand programs, vertical integration. People want to feed their own cattle rather than feeding them for somebody else. There's some very large yards that used to be 100% custom feeders. Examples, Myola, Sandalwood which are now 100% corporate cattle. So that's a very, very common trend right through. There's still some custom feeding happening, but perhaps not at the scale that it once did. I think, I think a lot of them might be thinking that they wish they were custom feeding at the moment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we'll talk about that also. But so I think there's also far fewer cattle that are non-committed with a predetermined destination and point. That those sort of non-committed cattle used to be reasonably common, but much, much less now. Another trend, just talking to the various stakeholders, the investment in grain processing systems has been huge. The, the overwhelming majority of yards we've spoken to are now using steam flaking, which is a very expensive installation in its first instance, but it obviously delivers much better grain utilisation and efficiency. That's been a significant decline. Seven years ago, there weren't that many yards that were flaking. At the top end, that, that the larger yards were, but there were plenty on the list further down that were using reconstitutions uh, or even just dry rolling in some cases. There's an interesting trend where there's a concentration of yards around 20,000 head this time, and we think there's a number of reasons for it. Probably the first is that that figure represents some sort of tipping point in economies of scale uh, in terms of staffing and um, infrastructure and various other reasons. We think that's probably a factor. And the other one we suspect is just um, sheer capital outlay. For a family-scale enterprise, anything above 20,000 head gets incredibly prohibitive. So I think that those two reasons probably mean that there's a sweet spot, if you'd like to call it that, around 20,000 head that yards are sort of, a lot of yards seem to be comfortable with. And the other point is probably... Um, I'd like to raise, and Andrew, you may have a comment on this, but there's been a significant increase in average days on feed across yards. I would call this the flight to quality. Andrew, would you agree with that? Oh, 100%. I think the list you've um, certainly rattled off there is in line with, with what I had written down as well. But I think if you just looked at 
the type of cattle that are in feed yards now is would be significantly different to your last report and then going back 20 years ago would be completely different. We have got such a dominance now of, of black cattle, you know, the rise of, of Angus and then those uh, long-fed Angus programs right through to, to, to Wagyu uh, where they're, you know, getting fed for three, four, up to 500 days at time. And, of course, the... The F1 market is a, it's a significant market as well in, in that space. So quality is uh, is king um, for those type of programs. And I think that's probably been a big uh, change in the industry where we were probably, you know, back years ago, it was about drought mitigation and, and just doing commodity beef products where today the Angus and Wagyu guys would refer to their product as the, the Louis Vuitton of the world's beef that we produce. It, it is high quality. Uh, we do a tremendous job of, of preparing it, and uh, there's obviously a, a huge appetite globally for that that long-fed, highly marbled product. Andrew, does that uh, the Wagyu influence, etc., and the long-fed cattle? Does that influence uh, owners' decisions or discussions about feedlot expansion? Oh, with, without a doubt. You know, I think that's why this is a really popular topic to talk about because you know you've got such variation in cattle values across these different uh, segments from northern type Brahmin cross, uh, Brahmin influenced cattle that are uh, probably more likely to be going into a 100 day grain fed type program or a, or a domestic program. So their value is, is, is quite different to um, quality uh, genetics that are going to do the right things as far as the, the right size carcass, the right quality carcass. Um, the value is, is reasonably you know, is, is hugely significant. So that gets chatter back on uh, at a farmer level for sure as to um, decision makings around what do we want to be, what type of cattle producer do we want to be. And with with this high-valued Wagyu industry that we have here, I think this is where the relationships and the supply chains that we have discussed a little bit is, is really critical because you've got to have the right genetics, you've got to have those genetics performing properly and um, and these supply chains, are, I think, are really very tightly held now where there's a good relationship from the producer right through to the feedlot in the genetics that they require, how that they want these cattle procured before they get to the feedlot around their health protocols and how they're actually fed right through to transporting them, uh, getting them to the destination. So the whole industry, I think, um, is probably sharing the information a bit more in those you know, those relationships are, are probably stronger than ever in making sure that, um, you know, they're buying the right cattle and uh, and paying the right money for the right cattle. Yeah, the, the type and style of cattle in feedlots these days, they're markedly different overall than what it was when we last did this survey, John. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Uh, and another point I'd just raise about the Wagyu uh, factor is feedlots love Wagyu cattle because... They're they're on a, a, a high roughage ration. They're easy to feed. The turnover, the, the the decline in turnover, makes the feedlot a lot more efficient. There's a good example of a feedlot which will appear on the list in coming days or weeks, where they've more than doubled the size of their yard, but they they because they've shifted from a a, a yearling oriented program to a, a wagyu program quite significantly. They're doing that with only about another 15 to 20% more staff. So they're, they're, they're getting efficiencies through their yard, through the lower turnovers, 
and it's probably something that isn't sort of apparent to others in the industry, but to the lot feeders themselves, that's a very significant uh, advantage. Now, I've got a question here. The increase in numbers is obvious, but are there new yards being built or or just the bigger ones getting bigger? Very few. Very few yards uh, are new yards you consider. It's it's all about expansion of the existing yards, and the, it, it comes back to cost. To build a brand new feedlot today from scratch is a prohibitively expensive exercise. You know, if you would take a twenty thousand head existing twenty thousand head yard out to thirty five thousand, the cost would be a fraction of actually building a new fifteen thousand head feedlot to feed the same number of, of cattle. I mean, you know, Andrew, I don't know whether you're familiar with the sort of costs involved. Years ago, the benchmark used to be $1,000 per beast area in a feedlot. Now, I think a lot lot would struggle to build a new feedlot for for $2,000 a head. And so, you know, you're talking an enormous cost for a 15,000 head yard. You're probably talking $30 million plus and maybe $40 million. What do do you think, Andrew, in terms of costing for feedlot development? Oh, definitely. Um, We're not really seeing any any new ones. I certainly uh, agree with that. The the expansion has been huge. But I think around these expansions, though, there's been so much research and development in the background about, you know, uh, the correct pen size, you know, the slopes on pens, things like shade, and um, you mentioned around milling and things like that. So they're all big costs. But when there's a return on an investment for implementing change or upgrading and things like that, if, if you've got the ability to cost that out and work out that there's a genuine return on investment in improved productivities and efficiencies and things like that, I think that's been a, a huge leap in the industry as well. That hasn't put the brake on people looking to expand. They've been uh, better prepared to be able to make those big financial decisions because, you know, there's stuff that's proven they can they can get their money back from putting the big infrastructure costing up there but no it is certainly uh, I, I wouldn't have the cash flow like some of these guys have and uh, they must have good bank managers because I've, I've seen some big dollars getting spent that's for sure john and andrew that new feedlot in wa harvest road number 18 on our list the first ever from wa to make the list and to make the top 25 ha- but with some startling differences, that must have raised a few eyebrows when this was opened. Sorry, yeah, I haven't uh, haven't been over there, uh, and I haven't had much to do with WA beef production. But uh, I'd, I'd love to get over there this year at some stage. But yeah, a, a significant move over there. You know, uh, it's a, it's a big part of of uh, their procuring cattle over in that system. But you know, I have heard a few sort of comments in, in the industry about the the, the reliance of cattle flow um, where, where they're pretty seasonal but drawing cattle out of the north uh, might be more of an option for them but yeah John I, I, I don't know you'd be more in tune with it than me I think with that one. Yeah well that's the feedlot which has uh, only been built for three years so it I think the first point I'd make is um, they have obviously stood the benefit of hindsight from looking at all the other feedlots that have come before in terms of what to do right and what to do wrong so you know, they very much are pitching Harvest Road as being industry best practice. They've also made some interesting decisions in terms of pen densities, and this is part of the principal's um, philosophy around no pain, no fear, so they have a very high animal welfare uh, expectation. So they've been prepared to make the sacrifice in terms of uh, pen densities. I think if you at the figures we looked at, they could easily feed another 7,000 cattle if they decided to follow Industry standard. Uh, yes, yeah, industry yeah. standard. That'd be the same. So this is Twinkie Forest it is. pushing this? That's a, a, a decision made at the company level. Yes. 
there's another there's at least one other feedlot which has a similar philosophy so it's probably not unique but it's certainly uncommon and um, it shows some of the emphasis that some of these owners and operators are prepared to go to to adhere to a standard that they set themselves on things like animal welfare. It'll be interesting to see how, if it takes on, that people, other people follow. Now, the people side of feedlots, that must have changed in the last few years as well. Look, it certainly has. We came up with two key findings and interested in your view on this, Andrew, but what's, what mm. impressed us probably more than anything else was the, the, the young age profile of people working in the lot feeding industry, it's unusually young compared to other links in the production chain. And there's a lot of feedlot managers out there, 27, 28, 29, thir- up to 32, but quite young men and women. And they're the next tier down, people running the mills and running the livestock teams, people in their mid-20s, it was quite common. The other key point is um, I would argue that the the feedlot sector has a higher representation of female staff than any other in the in the in the cattle industry or the beef industry. Lots of yards have fifty percent female uh, permanent staff. So, um, in some ways, they're atypical to for the to the broader industry. But I think it's a good thing. I think it's a great thing. But they certainly stand out for those two two key points. Completely agree. You know, there's a, a lot of young people in the industry. Uh, for sure, and yeah, it is dominated by by female staff. And um, to be honest, I, I think it's fantastic. I think you know when we have an industry that Big Brother's watching us a little bit around welfare standards and 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 the likes like that. I think uh, young girls certainly have really good attention to detail. They're 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 very caring. They have that uh, ability to you know pick up uh, sick cattle earlier. I, I, I believe. Yeah, just a just a little bit more attention to detail. You know, and of course. There's there's always the, the hook with feedlots of uh, the ability to ride your uh, ride your horse, so uh, that that seems to get a few of them in the door as well. But uh, they certainly the industry certainly has its challenges. I think uh, I, I think it's a bit like the rural industry in general that we need to encourage uh, and promote our industry as as best we can in any platform we can to to try and get good, young, enthusiastic people that not only want to come and uh, work, not just for a year. You know, we don't want it to be a gap year. We, we, we want it to be a career uh, because there's brilliant careers uh, in this in this beef business. And, um, you know, we've got, to, we've got to foster more of these young people to come along and, and be a part of this great industry. Andrew, tell us about the shift over the last several years since the last survey in the feedlot approach to managing waste. It used to be what do we do with this shit? And now it's been converted into a major asset, I understand. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I mean, I think there's a couple of uh, sides to that. You know, I mentioned there that some of the R&D things that have, that have uh, been happening in the background. One of those is probably on uh, the, the impact of, of manure and the depth of manure. What happens to that manure in the pens when you add water, the expansion that you get. And uh, what that means for cattle productivity and uh, and and obviously cattle comfort as well. So, you know that's that's the production side of it. Um, so we know a lot more about you know the appropriate depth of, of manure on those pens. So certainly pen cleaning is is a, an absolute must in these in these yards. What we're doing with that manure is, from what I've seen out there in the industry, from uh, one big feedlotter out there that has got a, a process where they produce pellets for fertiliser um, right through to where these feedlots are strategically located. They've got cropping country all around them as well. So, 
they're using it for, for fertilisers and, and, and the likes as well. Now, John, uh, Andrew, the current state of uh, feedlots, I, I know it varies, but you don't have to be a rocket surgeon to realise that at a, a, a moment in feedlots there's a lot of pain. In terms of profitability? Yes. Yeah, a- absolutely, and we reported on this just recently. Um, what's happening just at the moment is an unfortunate uh, alignment in the sense that cattle exiting the feedlot today, given that they are often on four-month and longer feeding programs, represent cattle, feeder cattle, bought at extremely high prices late last year. And what's happened in the interim while those cattle have been on feed, as we've all seen, is that the grain-fed cattle price, as have all slaughter cattle um, market segments, has fallen away quite dramatically. So it's meant that there's been a huge gap between what the, uh, what the feedlots and the supply chains have bought those feeder cattle for in terms of price and what they're able to extract for that product in the market as grain-fed beef today. And um, we have heard some, some horror stories just at the, at the moment um, of losses anywhere from 350 to $500 and even as high as $1,000 a head on, on cattle. So it's probably at the, at, the, at, the, at the apex of the pyramid right now. What will happen, of course, is over time they will work their way through those cattle and then eventually come mid-year they'll work their way into cattle that they've bought at significantly cheaper prices, um, which should help ease the pain. The other thing that could well ease the pain is the expectation that the broader industry has that uh, opportunity in export markets is going to improve because of the decline in production in the United States because of their drought. And and I think uh, that inevitably is going to see demand and potentially price for Australian beef improve a little. So I think just at the moment we're in a very, very difficult spot. Hopefully by mid-year that will start to improve and these figures will look a little healthier. Andrew, is that how you see it? Do you see uh, a continuation of the practices out there or is there the possibility that some might resume some form of uh, some level of custom feeding? Oh, look, I agree with John. I mean, we've come off some very, very lofty heights in the in the cattle market and um, that it was it was great. But, you know, I think um, when you have a look at the cattle price now, I mean, we're, we're, we're certainly, uh, it's come off the boil a bit, but the reality is that it's worth a lot more than we've seen in other uh, drop-offs before. But, you know, coming back to a point I made earlier around these, you know, supply chain relationships and, 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 and the right cattle, quality cattle, um, I think those types of cattle are still going to be sought after by the lot feeding industry. I mean, they, they know what cattle are performing in their yards. They, they know what uh, these long-fed cattle with the genetic lines and that sort of thing are going to do the right things for them when they're, when they're hanging up in the, in the abattoir. So, um, you know, the cattle that are procured properly and, and looked after their health and, and all the rest of it, I think, um, I think they're going to be the attractive cattle in the, in the marketplace. So the future, Andrew, uh, towards the end of the year, how's the industry? How will the industry be situated then? I think uh, from 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 this topic, uh, grain for eating uh, cattle is uh, well and truly here to stay, and 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 will be continuing on this year with, with without a doubt. Our turnoff of, of of cattle is fifty percent are all grain fed, so it's well and truly here to stay. Um, it's certainly not just a drought mitigation process anymore of, uh, you know, throwing cattle in a feedlot just to get some condition on uh, to, to make them marketable. We're, we're all about high quality, 
uh, good quality beef uh, supply in the world uh, and, and our domestic market as well. So we should certainly be proud of that. Where are our, uh, as far as the pricing and that sort of thing goes, uh, I'm no economist. I'll, 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 let, uh, I'll let John talk to the economists out there in the industry to get some real good feedback on that one. John? Yeah, look, I agree with your, your comments, Andrew. I think what we're seeing in the industry is a gradual move towards what I would call a US-style feedlot model. Australia has always been, we haven't embraced the lot feeding finishing system anywhere near as much as the United States has traditionally. And they've done that for a whole lot of reasons, including abundant, very cheap corn and all sorts of other um, other other reasons. But over time, I think what we're seeing is we, we are starting to look a little more like the US industry in terms of uh, quality beef production. And, and I, I don't think there's any reason why that's going to change. I, I think we will continue to go down this path. We're seeing a lot of people who used to be, here, here's a good example, people in Queensland that used to be for the last 50 years have been grass-fed bullock producers who, uh, because of the drought and other factors in the last three years, have become feeder steer producers. And highly unlikely that some of those people will go back to producing bullocks again. This is the new norm. Um, those those those. Their production systems are now used to produce feeder cattle rather than bullocks. I'd completely agree with that, John. That's exactly what uh, what I see out there. I think you know the the, the old grass fed big bullock. Yep, they're still out there. Uh, there's still some of those programs out there, and there's still a few premiums for those type of cattle out there. But um, I think we're we're certainly seeing those old traditional type systems change significantly, where they're they're running more breeder cows. Um, utilising their country better and turning off cattle younger um, as, as, as young feeder cattle. Yep, completely agree. So I should just mention before we uh, head towards finishing up, Kerry, that um, you know in the discussions we've had with, these, uh, with, the, with the 25 and also the others that didn't quite make the list, but there's an awful lot of expansion still in the pipeline. I mean, I would have a wild guess and say that at least another 150 to 200,000 head in yards where, where they're actually pushing dirt at the moment building a new expansion. They've got uh, approval and are about to move into it or are in the design and sort of uh, facilitation phase. That was a very common theme amongst the people we spoke to where this is we haven't sort of reached some sort of finite point on this. It's, this, this is a continuum. And um, I think if we do this survey in another three or four years, which we absolutely should, I think we'll easily see another couple of hundred on, the, on top of this current list. Well, we can look forward to that. Andrew uh, Hallis from Zoetis, John Condon from Beef Central and author of the Top 25 Feedlots in Australia, exclusive to Beef Central and running out on the Beef Central website over the next couple of weeks. Thank you both for your time today. Pleasure, Kerry. Great, Kerry. Thank you. And thank you for joining me today. Until next time, I'm Kerry Lonigan and this is The Weekly Grill. Mm-hmm.